This is Toronto Today on TSN 1050, the voice of Toronto sports. It's 12 o'clock. Happy Friday. The weekend is upon us. Mike Hogan in for Gareth Wheeler. Today, it's Toronto Today. Coming up a little bit later on, Steve Buffery will join us from the Toronto Sun. We will talk about the Blue Jays and uh, what happened yesterday down at the Rogers Centre and also look ahead to the trade deadline. Chris Cuthbert will join us. He is calling the Argos Riders tomorrow from Regina. We will preview that game for you. And up top, uh, we'll talk some hockey. As uh, We had Carlo Koliakovo on this show yesterday talking about the opportunity to play for Team Canada. It will be a different look for the Olympic team this year. And one of the people in charge of putting this team together, the Vice President of Hockey Operations and National Teams for Team Canada, Scott Salmon is on the line. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. How long have you been working on a plan B uh, with the assumption that you know that there was an opportunity that the NHL players would not be participating? Well, we've been working on it for over a year. And last year we, we hired Sean Burke as our director of player personnel. We had Dave King in, involved in coaching our Deutschland Cup and Spangler Cup team. So we... You know, we, we had those people in place looking um, ahead that, that this may be a reality. And, and, you know, in retrospect, it's a good thing. We've, we've got a head start. I think we have a, an idea at least of who our players may be. Uh, we also have an idea of how we're going to have to play if we're going to be successful and what our competition looks like. So having Dave and Sean involved in those two events and the World Championships, uh, I think, really set us up moving forward. Otherwise, we'd, we'd be at ground zero here today. And, uh, you know, and, and scrambling a little bit. So we've been working on this for over a year. At what point did you feel in your gut that it was go time and the NHL would not be participating and, and you had uh, you had some different work ahead of you? Well, you know, to be honest, I, I, I never really believed it until the schedule came out. And, and I always just thought they'd find a way. And, and you know, having been around players, um, you know, over the, the, the course of my career and, and understanding what the Olympic Games means to them, uh, I thought that, that there would be a way that it could be worked out. And, and that, you know, that's, that's as recent as the World Cup and having discussions with those players, the World Championship. So I always thought it was going to get done. And, and uh, unfortunately, I was wrong. And, and now we're on to a different plan. We've heard Alexander Ovechkin be pretty vocal about wanting to get away from the NHL because he wants to participate in the Olympics. Do you see any Canadian players asking for a similar uh, situation where they could take some time off their club team and go play for the country? I don't. I, I think, you know, and hey, that's that's great that some of the players from other countries feel that way, and that's that's certainly their prerogative. I think Canadians are a little bit different. I, I think, first of all, they're they're loyal to to the team they're playing on, and that's not to mean that, to say that they, you know, they don't care about the national thing. I, I think they they care deeply about playing for their country, but I think they're loyal to uh, to their club team, and I don't see any players looking to to leave the National Hockey League and join us. So, with them out of the equation, can you go over what this process has been like? Uh, trying to identify players uh, from minor levels here and Europe, et cetera, et cetera. What's this been like? Well, you know, I guess for a guy who's been to three Olympic Games with, with the NHL, it's been exciting. And and what's been really neat, and I heard you say you talked to Carlo yesterday, is just the reaction from the players. I think people, players, staff realize this is possibly a once-in-a-lifetime and that the NHL could uh, perceivably come back to, to the Olympic Games in 2022. And and so, first of all, the response has been outstanding, and players are really excited for the opportunity. 
Um, like I said, we laid the groundwork last year, so we had a pretty good feel on the depth chart of, of what our team could look like. You know, now um, as we got into the spring, we, we felt it was really important to try to build a really competitive schedule to be able to evaluate our players, but also prepare our players for the Olympic Games. And, and we've been able to accomplish that. We're, we're starting next week in Russia with back-to-back tournaments in Sochi and St. Petersburg. We're going to see 44 different Canadians that are going to be representative of four international leagues uh, of players playing in Europe. So um, we've got a wide base to, to take a look at. Um, you know, the interesting part of the process is trying to compare those players from Switzerland, from Germany, from, you know, the KHL uh, to Sweden, and, and just trying to get a feel for the quality of those leagues and the quality of the players in those leagues. And, and this first two tournaments will do that. Uh, we'll have an opportunity then to, to narrow our focus a little bit more as we, we get into the tournament in Finland and, and really start to see what we have when we play the Russians, the Finns, the Swedes, uh, the Swiss, and the Czechs. And, and then again build towards the Channel One Cup in Moscow and, and hopefully have about 90% of our Olympic team at that event and then get ready for the Olympics. So uh, I think the process is in place. You know, I think we have the right people to evaluate players and, and then ultimately prepare them with our coaching staff led by Willie Desjardins. So uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be different for sure, but it's going to be exciting. Scott Salmon joining us as the VP of Hockey Ops for Team Canada. What was the, the, the physical process like compiling uh, a database of players? Like, Did you physically start looking, since we had Carlo on, going and looking at Germany and saying, okay, which guys on which team are Canadian? How many are eligible? What's the age? What's the talent level, et cetera, et cetera? Like, did you have to do this for every league, or was there, was there, uh, uh, was there an easier route to do that? Well, you know, it started to be, to be quite honestly, we, we've got some really talented people in our organization who uh, who assist us in, in analytics, uh, and and we started just uh, using analytics and first of all identifying who the Canadians were and then an exhaustive list of Canadians in Europe, and then we 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 were fortunate to, again to have these talented people who who came up with an idea of the of an NHL equivalency. So, what is a one point or a goal in the in the Swiss league to the Swedish league to the German league to the Austrian league, wherever you are, what do you, how do you try to compare that to the National Hockey League? And then, so now you have a, a little bit of a, a level playing field or at least one, you know, one point that you can look at. And so we started from there and using the analytics that, you know, it's amazing as you start to talk to people and, and how many people know players and, and whether that player played in the American League or they remember him from junior or they've seen him in Europe. And so you start to put together this, this large list and like i said we're at 45 uh, i think we could be at 65 sure. we probably got over 65 on our list and you know we'll start to narrow it down but again that's kind of the the exciting part and and you look at players with nhl experience and some of the names that jump out at you but there's also some really good young players for whatever reason uh, it hasn't worked out for them in the national hockey league um that are going to catch people's attention here too are there one or two players that you're most intrigued by when you take a look at these two upcoming tournaments and and you want to see what they're all about at at this level with this group? Yeah, well, you know, I think everyone should be intrigued by the goaltending because those are the most important uh, players True. probably. And so, you know, we need goalies and we need quality goalies and we've got guys with with NHL experience that'll be there, Justin Peters, uh, you know, Kevin Poulin. Um, we, we've got good goaltenders. We've got um, players, goaltenders, Ben Scrivens with NHL experience. So I, I think I'm probably most intrigued by that just because of how important it is. Um, but there's a lot of other players. And, and, you know, you know Max Talbot, who's won the Stanley Cup, and 
and, and where he fits in and his leadership, and, and I'm excited to see that. So, yeah, I, I think overall um, there's a number of players that, that fit what we want. We, we want to be able to play fast. I think we have to. Uh, we want to obviously be very competitive, and so, you know, as we start to build the roster, those are the type of players we're going to look for. Scott Salmon joining us, the VP of Hockey Ops for Team Canada, talking about the Olympic process. A couple of tournaments in Russia that you mentioned, one in Sochi, uh, Sochi one in St. Petersburg. How important will the game action be in determining who's on your hockey club? It'll be important, um, but it's also important to realize it's August, you know, and and, um, and we're playing against KHL teams, so... It is important, but it's only a piece of the of the process, and it's an opportunity to get a feel for players, not a not a hard evaluation on players. And we're going to keep that in mind. You know, the other great thing about our schedule is we're starting in August. Uh, we're not going to play games in September and October. That's going to give us an opportunity to get out and evaluate players with their club teams as we narrow our focus to, to November. So it's it's an important first step. Uh, but I, by no means is it the only step. And, and, you know, I think there's still players that will find their way to Europe. Um, you know, there's some free agents that are still out there that, that haven't signed contracts. And so we're going to keep an open mind, and uh, we're going to just keep narrowing that focus. Scott, the big question, I don't know if you, if you care about this at all, but I'll ask it anyway, because uh, Canadian hockey fans have been used to watching best on best at the Olympics now. And when they see the roster come together, they'll recognize a lot of the names, but they won't look at them as being star players. How do you sell this tournament to the fan base? Because they're certainly used to, you know, as I say, the best on best aspect of it. I think it's a fair question, and I actually do care about it, because there's going to be at the end, 25 players that, that are going to represent Canada who really deserve, I think, the support of Canada, and, and, I, and I really believe they'll get it. Um, there's going to be great stories, for sure. We all know they're not NHL players. They're, they're not the best on the best, but they're going to wear a Canadian jersey, and I guarantee you they're going to give you absolutely everything they have. And so, you know, even if you watch the best players in the world, and if they're not going as hard as they can, uh, it's not that exciting, you know, like an all-star game type format. Yeah. And that's not to suggest the Olympics is like that. To me, what's exciting is is whatever level of hockey you watch, that the players compete absolutely as hard as they can, and, and that's what's going to be exciting. And you know, as we as we go through this journey, I think the stories are going to be told on this players. I think Canadians are going to get excited, and probably, you know, for the first time since NHL players have been at the Olympics, I think Canada's an underdog. And, and you know, that's something different, too. So uh, it's a hell of a challenge, and it's going to be a lot, of, a lot of fun doing it. Before we go, one of my favorite people to talk to in the sport is Dave King, and his enthusiasm is incredible. How do you keep him grounded and from just absolutely dominating the meetings? Because he is <laughs> such an encyclopedia, and with all his firsthand knowledge of the guys uh, who have played in Europe, I, I can only imagine what he would be like in this process. Yeah, but he's a legend, first of all, and and it's just so interesting to me to see how dialed he he in he is and how current he is in the game in terms of uh, how the game's played and, and knowing these players. So um, there's a tremendous amount of respect for Dave sure. um, within our coaching staff, within our management group. He he's a he's going to be incredibly important to us as we go through this process. And, and I think Willie Desjardins recognizes that our assistant coaches recognize that. And we're really fortunate to have, him. I think someone said at the, at the press conference last week, um, you know, he's probably the, the most experienced coach in the world when it comes to international hockey. 
that makes a lot of sense. Scott, this is going to be a fun process uh, to watch from the outside. I can't imagine how much fun you're going to have uh, on the inside. Thank you so much for doing this, and best of luck. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Scott Salmon joining us, the Vice President of Hockey Ops for Team Canada. Uh, it is an interesting process, and it's... it. I can't imagine what it would be like. We had Carlo Kolo on the show yesterday, as I imagine. For guys who have gone through the NHL career, some having more success than others, or for some guys who never really got a, to have a career, they may have had an NHL experience but not a career, and to get this opportunity to come together and play at the Olympics for Canada, as Scott said, this might be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So with the stars lined up for these players and the timing being perfect, uh, I can only imagine what it, uh, uh, what it would be like for these players getting the opportunity to put on the red and white and, and, and go and represent Canada at the Olympics. It's, it won't be best on best. But what I liked uh, from Scott among his answers was when he said there are going to be a lot of great stories out there. And as someone who is as intrigued by the stories of how something comes into place as, you know, watching, the, in this case, uh, the tournament itself, I'm, I'm going to probably be equally, if not more, intrigued by how they put this team together and who's on the team. There are going to be stories of, of guys who should have given up pro hockey 10 years ago who just love the sport so much and are still able to make a few bucks playing it that they just want to keep playing and playing and playing. And, and for this opportunity for guys like them, I think that's, that's unbelievable. There are going to be some spectacular stories. And again, just because we had him on the show yesterday, Carlo Koliakovo, first-round draft pick in a hockey-crazy market, pressure on him, and he never lives up to the expectations here. He goes to St. Louis, he plays four or five years for the Blues, where he was just he was fantastic. He looked like the player that the Leafs thought they drafted. And then he keeps hanging on, and he bounces around quite a bit at the end of his NHL career. He goes to Germany last year, has a blast, gets this new love for the game, this, 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 this I guess this, uh, this shot of adrenaline into his hockey life. And now he's got this opportunity to play for the country. I think that's fantastic. I'll go to the other side of the glass once again. Keith Bauer is our producer. Michael Skrizniak is our technical director. You guys are used to best-on-best best hockey, right? Crosby's not going to be playing for Team Canada this year. Connor McDavid not playing for Team Canada. How much does that affect your interest and passion for this tournament going in? I mean, for me personally, it's I don't think I can give an answer on that right now. I mean, the Olympics is, at least for me, is all about sports that I'm not necessarily going to care about around, you know, other than the Olympics. But then once the Olympics are on, it's just because of that, you know, national pride that you feel, it's a lot easier to get into. So I feel like despite not maybe knowing as much about the players as I normally would for Olympic hockey, I think it's still just that national pride kicks in, and I feel as though I'll be into it just as well as I normally would be. Do you envision yourself getting up to watch the games live in the middle of the night? As someone whose schedule is constantly all over the place, it's, you know, wait, waking up at 3 a.m., 5 a.m., noon, it doesn't make much of a difference, so really, yeah. it, it, it depends what I have going on. As a 9 to 5 or probably not as much, especially if Koliakov was a top 4D. I'm sorry. Well, un- understood, um, and, and I think that's going to be the mindset of a lot of Canadians, right? Uh, because, you're, you're, you know, P.K. Subban couldn't make the team last time around. 
Um, you can look at it that way. So do, do you foresee yourself, do, do you have an interest at all at this stage, or do you think it'll build up and maybe you'll get into it as we get closer? Yeah, maybe as we get closer, but as of right now, I'm not interested. There's so many other better sports at the Winter Olympics than, mm-hmm. than this C-League hockey. And that's the, the one thing that um, I think will be beneficial for other athletes is the fact that there's no quote-unquote dream team from the NHL playing in the Olympics because I think to an extent and and and, and this might be a little bit unfair but I think that in this country for many the Olympics was a hockey tournament with some other fringe sports on the outside of it Um, this way I think that the athletes from the other sports will get more recognition and more publicity because there won't be that microscope placed on the hockey uh, tournament where some of the other sports were uh, hurt by that. I mean, it, was, it certainly wasn't just a hockey tournament. It's never been, but I think for a lot of Canadians, because of the passion for the sport in this country, they got so wrapped up in trying to figure out what was going to happen when Canada played the States or Russia or Sweden that they lost focus or, or simply just didn't care to the same extent about some of the skiers or some of the other athletes that before the NHL was involved in the Olympics got a hell of a lot more attention than they did maybe Vancouver aside because it was local and it was on 24 hours a day. How many Leafs fans were looking forward to Austin Matthews versus Team Canada? Oh sure, absolutely. So once that died my interest just waned. That's it, it, I understand it but it is kind of sad. Um but that's you know back in the day that's what it was like. I mean they were getting all of these amateurs to come up in the early '80s. Um, you know guys before they would go to the NHL uh, would play for that program. Uh, Kirk Muller, Glenn Anderson, players like that would uh, would uh, Kevin Deneen, uh Chris Draper, players like that would go and play for the Olympic program before they got to the National Hockey League. So for guys who like you know I was covering an, uh, the OHL and was certainly more hands-on as a fan. It's, I didn't get to a game this year at all, um, although I still love that level of hockey. It was more interesting because you would see these guys develop and you would see them take the step from junior hockey to that program in a lot of cases and then onward and upward to the National Hockey League or AHL or wherever they end up playing. So uh, for those who like following, you know, connecting the dots for a player from one spot to the next... Uh, I think that's going to be a little bit interesting as far as that. We're going to take a quick timeout. We're going to come back and reset. Uh, Steve Buffery is going to join us. He was supposed to be here at 12.15. He'll be here at 12.45. Something came up. And Chris Cuthbert at the bottom of the hour as we uh, focus in on the Argos and Riders, which goes tomorrow right here on TSN 1050. It's 12.23. It's Toronto today. Mike Hogan in for Gareth Wheeler today. Get out of your vehicle lease ASAP. Over 200,000 customers per month are looking to take over your lease. What a relief. Go to leasebusters.com. Chris Cuthbert and uh, Steve Buffery coming up before the top of the clock. Scott MacArthur in at that point for the Scotty Mac Show. Uh, let's start with the receiver, gentlemen, shall we? little NFL talk. We'll get into that before we get into some CFL talk. Odell Beckham Jr. He's pretty good. I don't know if he's the best receiver in the league. He may be. It's certainly debatable. Um, Odell Beckham Jr., we found out, loves him. Some Odell Beckham Jr. 
He wants to be the top dog in the NFL in terms of dollars. It's like the elephant in the room, and you know you don't want to talk about it. And I've gotten to the point in my life where, like, no, nah, I'm gonna. There's no need to not talk about it. I believe that I will be, uh, hopefully, not just the highest paid receiver in the league, but the highest paid. Period. He wants to be the highest paid player in the National Football League. Is he nuts? Who would you rather have as a receiver? Would you rather have Julio Jones? Would you rather have Antonio Brown? Would you rather have T.Y. Hilton? There are a lot of good receivers in the NFL. And I don't know. I don't think you can categorically state that one receiver is the dominant receiver in the NFL. There are four or five guys that you can put into the argument, and Beckham is certainly one of them. There is zero question about that. Is he the best in the NFL? I think he's the most spectacular in the NFL. He makes more great one-handed catchers, uh, catches than anybody in the NFL. But does that make you worthy of the highest paycheck in the NFL? I don't think under any circumstance I would make a wide receiver. There may be, Okay, let me rephrase that. If you have a moderately good quarterback and a spectacular receiver who it's free agency, there may be an instance where you want to pay your receiver more than your quarterback. If you were on a team with an elite quarterback or a better-than-average quarterback, that's the guy you have to pay. When you're putting together your salary cap, that is the guy that needs to get the do-re-mi for obvious reasons. It's the most difficult position to play in sports. You have to go up as a quarterback, make a pre-snap read, and then when the ball is snapped, you have to have a post-snap read. You have to be able to decipher very quickly what a defense has switched into. You have to, if it's a passing play, being aware of your mechanics, drop back in about three seconds' time, check your primary receiver, check the coverage, see if he's open, If he's not open, go to your second receiver. And if he's not open, make a decision on throw the ball away or run. And don't forget, as you're doing this, there are now defensive ends who are six foot five and two hundred and ninety pounds trying to take your head off. This is not an easy position. Oh yeah, and when you get the mental part of this play sorted out, you may be forced to throw a ball. 45 yards downfield into basically a hula hoop. It's a tough position to play. I think they deserve a little bit more money than a guy who runs a route, with no disrespect intended at all to receivers. Quarterback's got to be your top guy. One guy who would like to get paid is Colin Kaepernick. Rumors aplenty that he may be heading to Baltimore. How about it, John Harbaugh? No, I wouldn't rule it out at all. I mean, he's a really good football player, and I think, you know, I believe he's a really good person. And, you know, it all depends on a lot of things. It depends on Colin, first of all, what he wants to do. What's his, what's his passion? What's his priority? What's he want to do? And uh, kind of shape he's in, and uh, if he's ready to go, and then our needs, you know, so we'll just kind of see where it goes. But I don't think that's different for us than any other team. Definitely going to get another arm in here, but I, he's not an arm, obviously, so he's an accomplished football player, and we always like having good football players around. Now, The Ravens today have signed David Olson. I know you're saying, oh yeah, that David Olson. Look, he's an arena league player with Kansas City. 
but he has signed there. You may know Olson from his college days. He was a he was a, he started at Stanford. He went to Clemson, so he played at a couple of fairly significant D one schools. That said, when you're battling for a backup quarterback, NFL, I I would not see any reason why they could bring in six or seven guys to take a look and see who might be the backup if they don't have a clear-cut number two quarterback or number three quarterback. You need options, and uh, certainly the Ravens are going to be doing that. Uh, Switch gears right now. That was a little NFL talk. We had been talking earlier about uh, the Olympic hockey program as well, and we'll get some CFL talk in with our next guest. You know him from calling NHL games and CFL games, and of course, back in the day, the golden goal. Mr. Chris Cuthbert on the line. Hello, sir. Hey, Hoagie. Good to be with you. We were talking about, uh, we had uh, Scott Salmond on, the VP of Hockey Ops from Team Canada. We were talking about uh, sort of the, the, the roster selection. I know this is a bit of a curveball for you, but you called the golden goal. No NHLers at this year's Olympics. How much do you think that'll hurt public interest in the tournament? Well, it's going to hurt it. I, I think uh, I think we're getting used to best on best and... and uh, uh, best on best at three in the morning, it'd be a little more intriguing than uh, than what we're seeing. But I, I don't want to diminish what what the Olympics can be without that, because I I still think the tournament can be interesting. I uh, I, I think in the past, I, I mean, I got into the business uh, uh, around the, the the team in 1980, and I kind of uh, knew some players who were vying for to be on that team so i took a great interest in the in the 1980 uh, olympic team and and uh, there were some guys like glenn anderson that ended up being yeah. pretty good nhl players it became an avenue for them to come in and 88 in calgary there were guys like jim poplinski and andy moog who uh, uh took advantage of of maybe a, a break in their pro schedule to uh to, to make sure they were they were involved so and everybody remembers uh, Forsberg against Hirsch in uh, yeah. in, in uh, was it 92 or 94 94 I believe uh, uh, so the you know there's it 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 might usher in a a, a different level of, of of new stars or or pave the way for some players to uh, uh, to get to get involved. So uh, I I don't diminish. I, to me, the Olympics is the Olympics, and and it always will carry some significance. Here here. Uh, let's get to uh, what you've been doing lately, and that's uh, covering the CFL. Fess up. Did you stay till the end of the game last night? Oh, absolutely, and uh, that uh, that might become the new game of the year. I. I, I mean, I mentioned it uh, the other night when we were doing the Argo game that uh, this has been the best first month of the year, and uh, and it, it's it's just been fantastic stuff. And and that finish, you know, I, I I don't think anybody you'd be lying if you said you could see it coming. But when they did score the touchdown with 44 seconds or whatever it was left, I thought, you know, knowing Mike O'Shea, I'd put money on O'Shea's. <laughs> Uh, ability to design a, a short kick that was going to work, and and he he just like he always does, he was thinking a little outside the box and and kicked it inside. And when they recovered, I I felt like you know what this is, uh, we're in for one of those uh, amazing finishes. Did you think the knee touched? I you know uh, on the on the actual game camera uh, when the play happened, I thought geez he didn't get in. 
But as I watched the replays, uh, I thought that's just an astonishing play. And I, I was thinking back, remember uh, Anthony Coombs? In Regina, uh, absolutely. In Saskatchewan. I think he's done it again since then. But uh, uh, I do know, and, and anybody that follows me on Twitter might know, that uh, our, our producer in the truck last night uh, tweeted out, and I retweeted, that uh, he had gone through every replay they had in the truck, and none of them showed that Andrew Harris was down. It, it was, to me, an extraordinary play to get in the end zone. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's the first thing that I harken back to, and I mentioned it last night on Twitter as well, that it reminded me of that Coombs play where somehow he was able to keep his knee off the ground by by diving forward, and that's that's what I thought last night with Harris. And it was it was a reward for people who stayed up late. And I, I like Milt's line last night on the panel when he said, how many people do you think were in their cars listening to the game in, in Winnipeg and just how upset they were that they didn't stick it out until the end? Well, if if you're watching the highlights again uh, later on, take a look at the crowd, even with the short kick. I mean, that building emptied out in a hurry, and and you know it's a, as you know it's a tough drive out of there yeah. after the game. But uh, so people were trying to get a head start, and I'm sure there was lots of disappointment. But they were a lot more disappointed that they missed it than uh, than uh, when when they were disappointed their team was down by a couple of scores. I just feel disappointed for whoever got the cab driver we had last year because he tried to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I don't think that's a one-off in any situation. <laughs> uh, here, here. You called the game that featured the '96, '97 reunion, the uh, Argos and Red Blacks last week. Uh, how much did you enjoy not only the game but the reunion? Oh, it was great stuff. Great memories, and and you know, I I uh, uh, I enjoyed it more. Kind of savored listening to to Doug Flutie and Pinball and and some of the other guys even more than I expected. Uh, it was a unique group, and uh, to see the energy, I, I was worried that they were going to try and storm the field and, and play the second half the way <laughs> Pinball was firing them up. But uh, obviously that was a special group, and, uh, and, and the city was lucky to have, and the team was lucky to have that, that kind of caliber personality as well as, uh, as talent back then. And, and uh, it was special to see. And, and Doug's on a reunion tour because he's actually in Calgary this weekend for the uh, – uh, the 25th anniversary of, of uh, the 92 Cup in Calgary. Um, what's your vivid mem- memory of Doug Flutie's era in Toronto? I've, I've talked to several people about that, and everybody seems to have a different lasting image of Doug Flutie in Toronto. What's yours? Uh, I, I guess mine is kind of blended because I, 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 I seem to do all of his Calgary games for so many years. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me, the memory of Doug Flutie is, is more, uh, Flutie to Pitts, uh, than anything else. Sure. But, but, uh, the, the, it was almost unfair in Toronto. The, and I guess in Calgary, there was the same level of, of surrounding cast or supporting cast. But, uh, uh, for me, it was always his escapability, his, uh, it looked like he was improvising. And, and I thought pinball was, was, great this week talking about how it looked like he was just drawing it up like in the sand but it was it was educated it was researched it was uh it was all about preparation but uh it was amazing that uh you know the way the x's and o's are designed that it's 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 one-on-one and somebody's got to take the quarterback and the guy that has the quarterback could never get Doug Flutie and he always seemed to escape and and make something uh, out of nothing. So uh, um, I don't know if that's an Argo memory, but uh, for for me, it, it you know Doug's 
Doug's uh, legacy will be as as the best because of that escapability and and the way he always just made something happen. But the, you know, the, there is a Toronto angle to that, and you talk about the preparedness. Danny Webb, who's the longtime equipment manager here in Toronto, uh, said that at one point, and don't forget, this is pre iPad and being able to take the stuff home with you on your computer. Uh, they had to cut Doug a key. Because Danny was tired of getting phone calls early in the morning, like 2 in the morning from Doug, you know, not being able to sleep and saying, I need to see this play against Winnipeg. I need to see it now. And Danny have to go down and open up the facility. So he just yeah, there's cut a key. story of him breaking in, I guess. Uh, but uh, And Danny mentioned that to me, too. He said that uh, what Doug's usual routine was, that he... He'd go home, have a have a meal after the game, and then and then head right back to the. And that, I kind of brought that up in the interview with him uh, when we had him in the third mm-hmm. quarter. That uh, that's pretty, you know, astonishing stuff for a guy who almost made it look too easy in the league. That the Doug Flutie, with all the talent, with all the numbers, all the records, never took anything for granted. He always still continued to outwork everybody else and uh and that's pretty impressive and you mentioned the x's and O's sandlot thing uh i remember to play in regina where they used to use a the, the shovel pass to robert drummond as a uh, as a as a staple he was a six foot three running back and there was a play in regina where flutie faked the toss drummond went up the a gap anyway and then flutie took two more steps back and pitched it to pinball who was lined up in the slot, and he followed Robert Drummond up the middle. And I asked Drummond the next day, I said, I hadn't seen you guys work on that at practice all year. When did you put that in? And he, he started laughing. He said, Flutie made it up in the huddle. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, he got down on a knee, and it was like we were playing in a schoolyard. He made the X's and O's, and he was saying, okay, you do this. And he's pointing out the, the, you know, the spot on the field with his finger. And he said, Flutie basically came up with that on the fly in the huddle. You know, they... They were so good in 96-97. I, I, I've told this story before, that my biggest memory of the 97 Grey Cup was when the game was well out of reach, Flutie connected with pinball down the far sideline or whatever, and it looked like he might be able to go in and score. It was definitely going to be another big play, and, and pinball was such a nice guy that uh, he, he actually turned back and, and basically looked like he on purpose cut back into traffic just to not rub it in anymore. So yeah. uh, that's that's how good they were. They could just toy with the opponents. Chris Cuthbert joining us from the CFL on TSN. What do you think of this year's edition of the Argos? You know, I, I think they're the biggest surprise in the league. Um, and and I, I, it's, I, I don't think we were surprised that a match of Mark Tressman and, and Ricky Ray was going to work yeah. because it, it, it really was a perfect combination. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it, they put a defense together. Now, obviously, it took some hits on Monday night, but they put a defense together in a hurry that is, uh, that's uh, pretty stout, pretty impressive. And, um, you know, I think the Armonte Edwards acquisition was, uh, was terrific. S.J. Green, obviously, was a, a steal, as, as Bear Woods was. But uh, I think the work Jim Pop and Mark Dressman have done in a short period of time is pretty extraordinary. It, it shouldn't happen that way. How many times when we talk to, to athletes and coaches, well, you need some cohesion and it takes time to gel. And when Josh Mitchell went down in the, in the, in the backfield early, uh, they've been starting nine new starters from a year ago. Um, you know, Marcus Ball had played here. Cleon Lang had played here, but did not play here last year. Nine new starters. And I, I don't know how a defense is supposed to gel that quickly, but somehow they have. 
Well, uh, maybe because they're veteran guys. I mean, Bear Woods is one of the top guys in the league, sure. Marcus Ball. I put Marcus Ball on my top 50 list and actually felt guilty about it because he hadn't played in the league in three or four years, and I thought maybe I was showing some disrespect to other players in the league, and then I watched Marcus Ball play for a couple of weeks and thought, you know what, I, I wasn't wrong. Uh, uh, but there's there's some veteran guys back there that uh, have been able to, to pull it all together, and, and I don't want to sound like I'm shilling for the team, Hoagie, but you know this, and and uh, I, I hope some fans know this that we go, we get to meet with the players, you know, a, a number of players. So we we get uh, extended uh, visits with each week, mm-hmm. and the quality of person that is in the Toronto camp, and I, I'd say it, it it is common across the league. It's it's not just in Toronto, but uh, when you get a chance to meet with guys like uh, Marcus Ball and Devere Posey and Victor Butler, and 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 the list goes on. That's that's a very quality uh, group of people, and and that's I know what that's what Mark Tressman yeah. looks for, and uh, again to be able to put that collection of people together as quickly as as they've done is is very impressive. Enjoy the game and enjoy draining the uh, the draft lines after the game. Uh, yes, yes. I'm in. Actually, I'm in in Edmonton tonight. So you, you're 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 a day ahead of me there. I was wondering if if, if I would if I'd miss something at Commonwealth, but we'll <laughs> we'll uh, we'll remember that for for tomorrow night too. Awesome. Be well, CC. Talk soon. Thanks, Hoagie. That is Chris Cuthbert joining us from the CFL on TSN and the Rufford. They've got uh, this new stadium, a spectacular stadium in Regina, and they don't have the taps at every beer outlet they've got this giant set of tubes running through the stadium with with ice cold beer in it it's it's an interesting process to say the least Uh, when we come back steve buffery will drop by from the toronto sun get a little baseball talk in as we continue with toronto today on tsn 1050 hendricks readies the leg kick the pitch swung on belted deep down the left field line it is a grand slam to walk it off Steve Pierce, his ninth home run of the year, is a grand slam, and he will await the mob at home plate. Courtesy of KGMZ, that's the call of the winning grand slam yesterday by Steve Pierce, and somebody who wrote about him in the Toronto Sun Post Media, Steve Buffery. The Beezer joins us. What's up, Steve? Not bad, Mike. How you doing? I'm hanging in. Thank you. Now, just share this, because I'm always intrigued when I see a post-game story like this, because I know the way that the print guys operate, where you'll have a game story and you'll be looking for sidebars, and you try right. to write during the game. Um, did Did you have this story started uh, with Steve Pierce, or did you pick all of this stuff up post-game? No, well, I've been thinking of writing something on him, because he certainly played better since he came off the DL, and I was thinking of... One of those deals, Mike, you know how it works. You, you know, you, you've got an idea what you want to write, but yeah. what you want to sort of wait for some the guy to do something spectacular. So, of course, you know, you can't get much more spectacular than hitting a walk-off grand slam. And I thought, I was fortunate enough that I had a colleague with me from the, the Sun slash Post Media, and he was doing a game or so. After the initial interview with Steve Pierce and all the media guys, I just went to his locker and chatted with him for another 15, 20 minutes alone. So... Yeah, so that was, I want to do something on him because, uh, you know, I don't think a lot has been written about him compared to some of these other guys, and he's really come out of his funk lately. So, you know, a lot, as you know too, Mike, uh, you know, with, with the work you do, that, you know, generally speaking, if you can get these guys alone, you're going to yeah. get more from them than if there's like 30 other guys hanging around, you know? Absolutely. And you found, I think you found the money angle on this one that his family was up, and, and that's not a norm. 
Yeah, amazing because you know the great thing is like you know they they've, they've only been up here twice. They live in Florida, and uh, the first time they came up right after spring training, and he wasn't playing well, and he got hurt a week later. So it was really disappointing, and he decided to fly them back again Wednesday night. And sure enough, they they go to their first game, and boom. And uh, you know, it's like I wrote my article. It's like you know, usually when something like that happens, you want to find your dad or your wife in the stands, and you make the eye contact thing. But he had no clue as to where the. Uh, the uh, you know the wives of players sat so he just basically said he said I think he said he gave a little wave just hoping that they were still watching him obviously so it was it was great it was a good night he's uh, he's Perfect got another timing. he's got another year left on the contract and and yeah. you know I think people uh, when they're playing fantasy GM have traded everybody off the Toronto Blue Jays in, in one deal or another what do you think Steve Pierce's future is in Toronto. Well, it's a great question, Mike. It all comes down to what uh, Shapiro and Atkins decide to do with this team. I mean, if they're serious about, um, you know, staying competitive for next year, then you can't completely blow up this team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and everybody knows that when they brought in Steve Pierce, the question was that they were going to play him at first and and not, you know, and, you know, let Smoke DH once in a while and whatnot and left field once in a while. But he hasn't played first because Smoke has just been so great this year. So left field, as is, is most Blue Jays fans realize, is it's been sort of a Achilles heel for the team this year. So, you know, he's playing finally like Gibbons and all them thought he would, like he played in Baltimore. So, you know, I think he's a guy to want to keep around because he's got so many useful things he can do. He's a, he's a utility guy, and his money isn't that big. So I figure that, you know, even if they get rid of some guys, like they don't bring Batista back and they try to, you know, they get rid of Estrada and Liriano and that kind of thing. I think they might want to bring him back because I think they might get Anthony Alfred or Dwight Smith Jr. a try next year, and, and they still want a guy who can go in and play the infield and play the outfield when they need him. I think he's a perfect guy for that. You know what it's like after uh, some games in certain major league cities, they'll, every once in a while they'll invite kids down to run the bases. If they were to do that after a Jays game and you were to run a race against Tulowitzki, who would win? Oh, my God. Oh, geez, I would win on one leg, and I'm an old guy. <laughs> like it's, it's, you know, and the thing is, and I've asked, I've asked them this: Is it what's the problem? Is it just he's just slow now, or he's afraid of hurting something? And it, he can't be that slow. There's no way. So he's either still sore, or he's afraid. I mean, you see him coming home last night. He didn't even turn. He didn't even try to turn on the Jets. It was pathetic. So, I mean, what do you do with like that? To me, people talk about. You know, trading Estrada and Liriano and bringing Batista back. But the big thing is, what do you do about a, you know, a shortstop who's still a, a great defensive shortstop anywhere near the ball, but his range is down, his batting average is down, his power is down. And now, what are you going to start pinch hitting this guy in the sixth, seventh inning? Like, you know, I mean, what, what exactly is no one's going to want him, Mike? I mean, who wants a, a shortstop who's aging dramatically, who can't run at $20 million a year? To me, if they can, I'll tell you what. No matter what else Atkins does, if he can find a way to get somebody to pick up Tulowitzki, then you know, then I, I'll give him I'll give him another two years uh, grace period to do whatever else he wants. Because to me, that's the question. Because I think it's just going to get worse with this guy. Well, he'd have to come. Whoever the GM would be would have to pull off a Masai Ujiri, right, to be able to move this thing. And uh, you know, I, I think it would be an interesting question, even without the contract involved. Which is twenty yeah. million for the Ranger this or whatever's left on the twenty this year, twenty next year, twenty in nineteen and fourteen in twenty twenty. Yeah. Um yeah. could you move this guy just in a baseball deal if he didn't have the contract connected well, to see, him? That's 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 another good question. I I, I I do think you probably could, Mike, because 
you know, I mean, you know what our teams are like when they're getting great close to the nitty gritty, and you know, shortstop is not one of their sort of better uh, positions on their team. I mean, you talk to John Gibbons about Tulowitzki; he still loves the guy because he is he is an anchor out there, and he will pretty well field any ball that's near him. He just doesn't have the range and the speed. So, you know, I mean, if he, he is a solid anchor infielder, it's probably the most important position in the infield. So. Yeah, without the money, I think there would be interest in them. But maybe the only way they can trade him, Mike, is if the Jays just bite the bullet and say, look, man, we'll just pay this much of his salary if you take him off our hands. And maybe there's a team out there, maybe there's one or two teams on the, uh, you know, on, on the cusp of doing something big that would do it. But it would. It would have to be, uh, it would have to be something that, you know, it goes without, without even any doubt that the, the Jays would have to pick up a lot of his contract, but again, you, you just said it, three years with a fourth-year option, I mean, he might be a huge anchor on the side of this team for the next few years, especially when you're trying to rebuild something. Absolutely. Steve Buffery joining us from the Toronto Sun and Post Media. Uh, what did you think of the umpiring yesterday and the way that Strowman reacted to it? Well, you know what, Mike? Uh, you know, I, I, I watched a lot of the pitches over again and that kind of thing, and I looked at all those graphs and whatnot, and he, and he got burned a little bit, but so did the Sort of the uh, the Oakland star or the uh, the other starter too a little bit. I mean, but the problem is Strowman is making this almost a daily thing. I mean, just a few games ago against Houston, he was bitching and complaining about the umpire calling time when he was in his, that delay windup yeah. that he does now. And he's I, I and I wrote at the time, Mike, that this guy is not doing himself any favors because you know umpires like they have long memories and. And, you know, and they all, and Gibbons and that say, DeMarlo Hale said last night, you know, Strowman has to pitch for the motion, and that's fine. But, you know, you get a reputation in this league. An umpire is not your buddy anymore, and he can call all these borderline pitches the other way, and that can completely screw up your life, your night. Let's face it, right? So he's got to figure out a way to get it under control because he's not doing himself any favors. And I don't know if I buy into this. Emotion is a good thing, Mike, but. Pitchers also have to have control, and if you're letting your emotions get the better of you, I mean, you're you're telling me that your your all your stuff is under control. I don't think so. So, to me, if I'm the Jays, I, you got to sit down with Strowman and say, "Look, man, let me remember they used to talk about Jose Batista arguing with the umps, yeah. and, and and he's really calmed down. You know, like he he did that little thing yesterday. He's got to shrug shrug his shoulders, but I think this is a thing that they really have to address, and they they got to do it soon because. Strowman is not doing himself any favors. Uh, he says he pitches better when he plays with emotion. Do you yeah. write? Do you write better when you're angry? Uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> I do because usually I'm pissed off in the desk for demanding that I get the coffee and right away. And you, you know, somebody just hit a home run at the bottom of the night, so anger is a good motivating factor. But uh, you know, but I don't yell at the, I don't I don't yell at my colleagues beside me like Stro does. But uh, you know, anger could be a good thing. On the other hand, I'm not. My copy isn't pinpoint control, so you know. You <laughs> That's what makes you an entertaining Mike. read, though. The fact that you well, don't I know what's so. coming. Right, exactly. <laughs> the other game, when the the two games that are always had the right stories on deadline with the lead changing, like right away. You know how difficult that is. Absolutely, so, yeah. Steve. A pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this, man. Enjoy the Anytime, weekend, and we'll Mike. talk soon. Thanks, you Steve. Too, bye. Steve Buffery joining us from the Toronto Sun talking a little baseball. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Scott MacArthur will be doing that in the next three hours, including certainly the baseball hour between three and four. Uh, my thanks to Mr. Keith Bauer, our esteemed producer today. Nice job, sir. That's a big change from the I have no idea why he's producing this show. Are you 
measured at the top of the well, show. Well, yeah, that, that, that was probably yeah. more accurate. It's just being nice <laughs> heading into the weekend. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. And uh, Scrizz, as always, thank you, pal. Um, good luck in fantasy this weekend, Hoagie. I, I, thank you. I, I can't wish you the same because I'm playing you. Trying to get good karma on my side. There, oh, okay, gotcha. Have fun, boys. Thank you. Uh, Scotty Matt coming up next here on TSN 1050.